So you all celebrated with us, and we thank you for it, as we were able to tell you that, we told you last Sunday, that the two Sundays prior to that, Dave, if you would pull that up, please, prior to that, there was a group of us who were on the, uh, uh, on the shore of Clearwater Beach in Florida when our daughter and Felix, whom we really do love and appreciate, right here, and that's not as clear as I want it. There we go. When Felix and Denea were engaged, and you celebrated with us, that was wonderful. I want to tell you a little bit more of what took place, if that's okay. Before we left, and you can just leave that up for now, Dave. Before we left, um, it occurred to me, I was in Grand Forks, it occurred to me, probably need to bring a gift for these parents that we're going to be meeting. So I fell back on what I did with worked really well with Maggie, Kent's wife's father, we wanted to bring him something from Minnesota, so I brought a him. I brought a Minnesota Vikings cap. So I thought for Felix's dad Juan, I would bring a Minnesota Twins cap. So I went and found a really nice one at Shields. Was real happy to give it, and and Lori wasn't with me at this time, and I and I thought we got to have something for Felix's mom. So I'm wandering around the mall, and how crazy is this? I'm in Bed Bath and Beyond, trying to find something for a woman from a different culture, speaks a different language that I have never met, is married to another man. It's like this is odd. And I even told the lady there, she said, can I help you, sir? It's like, I don't even want to tell you what the, the circumstances that are here. It's going to just be too strange. Eventually, she tried to help me, couldn't find anything. So I was able to get Lori on the phone, and she came up with another idea. So I went over to another place, and there we are. I got something. really wasn't all that good, so we left it at home. We're going to be returning it. And when we got down there, Lori picked up some things for um, Carmen. That's Felix's mom. And wonderful. We have these gifts that we are delighted to give to them when we meet them. So... We're prepared. Saturday, we were out doing some things, and I think we were with Mike. Was that it? I don't remember the details. It's kind of a blur. But we're out doing some things, and we get a text message that indicates that Felix and his parents, who I didn't expect we were going to meet until Sunday, they're kind of hanging around Danea's uh, townhome waiting for us to get back. Oh, Okay. So what we decided to do, we named a restaurant and said, let's just meet at that restaurant. We'll just have coffee and pie because we've all eaten and we'll get a chance to get acquainted. Now you understand, we've been out. We, I, I didn't shave, nothing. It doesn't look too good. So they come in and they have a gift bag. And Juan reaches into the gift bag and pulls out a hat. Lovely hat, isn't it? It's a wonderful hat. And then there's these other gifts that are for Lori, some of it being chocolate. Well, we already have chocolate for her. I have a hat for him. We're like, yeah, this is going to work good, right? We're in a good place. I'm feeling just a little bit embarrassed that we can't exchange at the same time. But tomorrow is the play when I thought we were going to meet them. We'll bring them to the play and we'll have them for them tomorrow. We literally are walking out the door of Danea's townhome ready to go to the play, and we went, ah, oh, there's chocolate in this bag. It's 80 degrees there, sitting in a car. It's going to be 100 degrees in the car. We can't give the chocolate. We're going to have to wait. So we held off on giving all of that, and then we had this wonderful time here, and it all went fine. So now Monday will be our opportunity to give them the, uh, to give them the, the gifts that we have for them, right? 
So we're all excited about Monday. Monday comes, we're going to spend a day with them, and we decide to go dolphin watching because they had never seen wild dolphins, and we go down to a place called John's Pass where you have a good chance of seeing dolphins. So they come to the townhome, and we're going to leave together from there. It's great because we're going to be able to give them the gifts. Now, when we got the gifts from them, they carried them in in one gift bag, And John took the hat out of the top of the gift bag, handed it to me, and Carmen handed the gift bag to Lori. So we got this. We'll do just what they did. And the hat went on top of the gifts for Carmen. Perfect. We're ready to go. But we're trying to get out the door. And and so they come in. Lori hands the gift bag, which seems appropriate to us. Carmen says, oh, thank you. Muchas gracias. Reaches in, sees a hat. Turns out she loves baseball caps. Puts it on. And then enjoys the rest of the gifts. And Lori and I do not know what to do. And now I am even more mortified that I got you a hat before we left. I'm the guy who did the shopping. And it looks like I just stiffed you on a gift, Juan. And I have no idea what to do. So we went out dolphin watching. Okay. Uh, Dave, and here you can see, isn't this a lovely hat she's wearing? (laughs) She actually looks adorable in that hat. It's wonderful on her. So all Monday, and I'm I'm like, you know, getting Denea to the side. Denea, you got to explain to them that I didn't stiff his dad, that I had a hat, but somehow she thought it was for her, and I don't know what to do. So we went on and did what we did, and I continued to be mortified the rest of the day. Tuesday is the last day that we're going to have with them, and totally exhausted. So all that we did was meet with them at Tanea's townhome in the evening, and they brought pizza because they'd been visit. They'd gone over to Orlando. They brought in pizza, and uh, we're just going to visit there for our last night together. And as it turns out, we find out a little bit more about hats. Because what we find out is Felix, who had said his dad was, because his dad had a new one of these on also, was really excited to find this hat. He had told us that at the beginning. Oh, he was really excited to find that hat. Okay. Well, now, Tuesday night, as we're sitting there, we're asking them more about their life in uh, Ponce. Turns out in this city of 200,000 people, he has a significant role. He works for the government. The government owns a particular theater and he like is the, he's the guy in that theater. He's the one who gets things done in that theater. And he has worn this style of hat for years. It's the only style of hat that he will wear. And because he is the guy who gets things done and has been there for so long, it's understood that if you want something to happen, here's how Felix said, if you, that, that, the way he put it to me was this, there was a, a, a government thing where they were acknowledging all these people, recognizing everybody, and from the front of these hundreds of people who were there for some gala type of thing, some well-known person in Puerto Rico was acknowledging Felix's dad, and he said it was just understood that if in that town you wanted to get something done, you'd go to the man with the hat. And that's how he was known. The man with the hat. And it was always this kind of hat. 
So he was glad because he's, Felix said, he's owned a number of them through the years. Obviously, they get dirty, they break up. People have asked him to have his old hats because of his influence. They would like to have an old one. He has kept them all. People, he said, would come and touch his hat. They'd ask if they could put it on. So he was the man with the hat and known as such. Well, all of a sudden, this gift hat takes on a totally different perspective. Because he has just brought me into a place of honor by sharing this thing which is so identified with him. And he said, I want you in on this. And this is who I am. What neither he nor I knew, the last picture if you would, what either, and you really can't see it, I'm sorry, but here's what's happening. What either, neither he nor I knew is that there was a birthday cake that was going to come out, and these are little party favors that you blow, and the thing goes, right? And the things flutter. And um, his birthday was just a couple weeks before we were together. My birthday was to be a couple weeks afterwards. And so Danea and Lori and Felix and his mom, they all sang happy birthday to us. Well, as we got going, we started singing to each other. And he's singing happy birthday in Spanish, and I'm speaking happy birthday in English. We're having a great time with our hats. And that which had been an agitation and so embarrassing to me became a bond that we shared. And somehow the confusion about the hats after that night just didn't seem to matter anymore. Naomi was a woman who also suffered some serious agitation. As we look at the book of Ruth, understand that it's taking place in the context, in the context of the book of Judges. If you were with us last week, you understand that during the course of the book of Judges, our, our memory verse with that was, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And when we do what is right in our own eyes, we just spiral down into the depths of degradation. In those last five chapters, we look at them and go, this is nuts for where these people were headed. So in the midst of that, we have this story entitled Ruth. We'll pick up the story right at the beginning. We're going to walk ourselves through it very, very briefly. We're going to, we've got to take an overview to understand what we're trying to say here. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in those days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malan and Kilion, Ephrathites of the Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab, the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then Malin and Kilian also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Naomi, husband, sons, foreign country, loses the husband. 
loses her sons. She's left with two Moabitess widowed daughter-in-laws. She knows she's got to return to her people in Bethlehem. So she's going to do that. She also knows that if, she, if these widowed daughter-in-laws come with her, they are going to be foreigners. And so she says to them, go back to your homes, go back to your parents, reestablish your lives, and I will head back to Bethlehem. And Orpah accepted that, and it was perfectly okay for Orpah to do that. But Ruth was in a different place. And Ruth said, no, I'm going to stay with you. And her commitment to that is what has come down to us, and we see it, uh, we hear it in uh, weddings sometimes about where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Only do not ask me to separate from you. So Naomi recognizes her daughter in law is coming with her, and they head back to Bethlehem. And we read in verse 19 of chapter 1. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? Now she's been gone over ten years. So it's quite a reunion they're anticipating. But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? Naomi is in deep agitation. There was a time in her life when it looked like everything was moving in a good direction. She had a husband. She had sons. They had lovely wives. Good things were in store, and it's all gone. And she comes back ashamed. She comes back defeated. She comes back uh, just absolutely discouraged. And as she describes herself, she comes back bitter. But she came back, and Ruth came with her. Now, The end of the chapter indicates that they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Ruth, totally committed to her mother-in-law, understands that if they're going to eat, if they're going to survive, she's got some work to do. Now, under the Old Testament law, we would understand that when they harvested a field, they were required to leave the corners of their fields. They were required so that people who were in need could, at their own labor, come and receive sustenance from the corners of those fields. And they could eat and they could sustain their existence. So that was required. So Ruth desires to go out, go into a field where they are harvesting, And she now will harvest for her sake and for Naomi's sake. And so she does that. She comes across the field of a very wealthy man by the name of Boaz. Boaz inquires as to who is this girl who is harvesting in their field. 
and learns that it's this Ruth, the Moabites, the one who came back with Naomi, and he takes note of her. He, in fact, instructs those who are in charge of his work crew that um, they are to never prevent her from harvesting, even that as she harvests, drop some grain, make it available for her, make it easy for her to get some good gleanings. Because he has understood that this is, this is a righteous and virtuous woman who has returned with Naomi, which happens to be a relative to him. And so he is stepping up to the plate to make sure that they will be okay. So when, when Ruth comes back after the harvest, she comes back. She's got a good amount that she has been able to glean because of the favor of Boaz upon her because of her righteousness and, and, and how she's dealing with Naomi. So she comes back and Naomi, of course, wants to know what went on. And in verse 19 of chapter 2, we read this very significant passage. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. We're going to come back to that term because it is absolutely essential to understand what is going on in this book. But it is one who not only is a relative, it is one who is a deliverer, one who redeems, one who is able to buy back those who are in need. And so the story goes on. And it gets to be the time of the end of the harvest. And so now they're cleaning the grain and some long days are being put in. And at that time, in order to protect the piles of grains that they were making, they would literally sleep out by the grain piles to protect them. So you just don't have somebody else come in, steal your grain in the middle of the night after all your hard work. And so... Naomi made it clear to Ruth, here's what's going to happen tonight, and here's your, here's your task. After Boaz has worked hard, then they will eat and they will drink and he will be exhausted. He's going to lay down somewhere near his pile of grain. You then are going to come quietly and you're going to lay at his feet. That's clear, right? At his feet. And you're going to uncover his feet. And he will wake up, and when he does, you tell him, cast your wings over me. What she is effectively asking is this, is will you bring us, herself, Ruth, and Naomi, her mother-in-law, in under your protection? Now here's what's understood. Naomi had some land. They left because of a famine. Naomi's going to, that's been, it's been sold. Something needs to happen there. And so she's asking him as this near relative to step in and help them out. And he says, I'll take care of things when it's daylight. 
So daylight comes, and Boaz goes to the gate. You understand that the town gate is where business was taken care of. That's where the elders in town would sit, and people would come to them with their needs, and they would discuss things and sort things out. And um, that's where they would enter into covenants, and legal contracts were made at the gate. And so he comes to the gate, and he had called another kinsman of the family, who we are never told who this other kinsman is. But he, in fact, is closer in relation to Naomi and Naomi's husband than he is. And he says, we've got to first figure out what's happening with him. So he calls this guy. The guy comes, and he says, look, Naomi's got a plot of land. Uh, She needs somebody to buy it back for her. Will you do it? And the guy says, yes, I will. And then Boaz says, now here's the deal. (laughs) Naomi also has a daughter-in-law with her, a Moabitess. And if you buy the land, you also have to raise up seed. This is all according to Levitical law. You have to raise up some seed so that the firstborn son between you, you're going to marry this girl, the firstborn son between you and Ruth is going to carry is going to carry her husband's name so that his name is not lost in all of Israel. And she's going to become part of the entire inheritance package one day you pass on. And he says, no, can't do that. I'm not going that far that I'm going to raise up a son to another guy. And Boaz says, fine. This is all taking place in front of everyone. And in verse 6, we pick it up with his response. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in, in, uh, in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, And this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal, and Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's. That was Naomi's husband. I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Malon's. Those are the sons from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his people at the gate. You are witnesses this day. Interesting thing. We use notary publics to validate that somebody has entered into a covenant. They would hand a sandal. Now, it's, it, what's interesting to me is Shoes are still used in Middle Eastern culture to communicate things. I recall a number of years ago, there was a Middle Eastern man who, um, who lived here, and I was trying to befriend him, and he expressed frustration with his in-laws. And this is what he said to me as he was expressing his frustration. If you knew what they did to me, you would want to take off your sandal and hit them. I'm serious. And you recall a, a number of years back when George Bush was in office, he was giving some type, of a, uh, some type of, of a press conference and somebody didn't like him who was Middle Eastern and threw his sandals at the president of America. Remember that? Yeah, it's out there. He took him and he's winging his sandals at him. This is how things were communicated. 
And when that took place in front of the elders of the city, it was considered a legal contract. And so then Boaz enters in, purchases that which is Naomi's, with the agreement that the first son that is born to, because he's going to marry Ruth, the first son that is born to her is going to be named after Malan so that this family name is not cut off. And if we pick it up in verse 13, we see a child is born. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the, woman, then the women said to Naomi, remember the women who greeted her when she came back, and they were so excited, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Somehow, as the circumstances unfolded, The emptiness, the agitation, the frustration, the bitterness that Naomi came back to Bethlehem with so that when they greeted her as Naomi, she said, don't call me Naomi. I'm bitter at what God has done. God has afflicted me. And now they're celebrating again. And all of that doesn't seem to matter anymore. Two notes that I'd like to point out. One, the person of Boaz is what we refer to as a type of Christ. Remember that phrase, kinsman, redeemer? He is a near relative redeemer. He is one who was able, he had the legal right, he had the possibility to come in and help this family out because of the closeness of his bloodline and because of the fact, as we were told at the beginning, he was a wealthy man. He could do it. How is that a type of Christ? Friends, what are we going to celebrate here in this next week? You see, we just had Christmas a few months back, right? And what what did we celebrate in Christmas? That Christmas. The second person of the Trinity took on flesh. And he became flesh and dwelt among us. He became a kinsman to us. Because if we were ever to be redeemed out of the problem of sin that we all face, if we were ever to have the penalty of of sin that we have incurred paid on our behalf, we needed somebody who was close to us who could make that payment. And Jesus Christ alone is the one who close to us in that he became, took on flesh, he became human, but then because he also is the second person of the Trinity, never sinned, he now has the capacity to offer the perfect sacrifice. And when we get to Easter, that's what we'll be celebrating. Christmas is the nearness, the kinsmanship part, Easter is the redeeming part. 
of what Boaz did. So we're being given this picture in the midst of the book of Ruth of what Christ would ultimately accomplish. So the person of Boaz is a type of Christ theologically. The outcome of the events leads directly to Christ historically. Now we don't normally get too excited about reading genealogies, but be patient with me if you will for just a couple verses. The last verses of the book say this, beginning in verse 18. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. That goes way back in the Old Testament. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. And David was given the promise that Messiah would come through his bloodline. How incredible is that? And with that, we can now draw a straight line. We won't take much time with this story, but we do need to touch on a particular story. A straight line to a story in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And you know the setting. You're familiar with it. But let's put it in our thinking. The time has come. We're looking at this day of the week before Christ is going to be crucified. It's what's referred to as his triumphal entry where he is being presented to the nation of Israel for them to make a decision as to what they're going to do with this one who has come to be their kinsman redeemer. And in verse 37, we're jumping right into the middle. As he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. There was a degree of frustration. There was a degree of anger. There was a degree of bewilderment that he was receiving, that he was receiving this accolade. And so the religious leaders say, tell them to be quiet. They cannot ascribe this to you. And Jesus said, If they don't, even the stones will cry out. The only stone I've ever held directly from Israel. Thank you, Randy. But I find myself wondering, had the people quieted down, would this particular stone have cried out? Because God had ordained that on that day, The praises of Christ, the kinsman redeemer, would be proclaimed. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave, it, leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. They were so agitated by what was taking place, they could no longer legitimately assess Has God arrived in Jerusalem today? Is this something we ought to be celebrating? Now, friends, we're wrapping it up here. And following all three stories, the hat, which, by the way, Felix and his dad refers to as a sombrero, the sandal, whereby Boaz was declaring his role as the kinsman redeemer and the stones which themselves would have declared that this long-awaited one is here in Jerusalem if the people did not. I would like to just share with us, I think it's profound, about the agitations that are common to our existence because we all have them. Some of us have probably had a hard time this morning even concentrating on what's being said because there's something in our life that is so agitating, so irritating that, you know, you blew me off at the beginning because there's this stuff internally because we've all got them. It's hard to focus. See, I was agitated about circumstances with a hat, circumstances I couldn't control. Naomi was agitated by loss. The priests were agitated by an unruly crowd. We all experience agitation. But here's the simple thought I want to leave with us. The agitation before us, and it's real, the agitation before us never, never, never extinguishes God's redemption around us. The agitation before us never extinguishes God's redemption around us. What do I mean by that? If I'm not in agitating circumstances right now, give me another week or so and I'll bump up against some more and so will you. It's life. It's a broken and fallen world in which we live. But here's the deal. Regardless of those particular agitations that you and I are feeling personally, God has not quit his redemptive work of bringing people into eternal life through his Son and transforming them into the image of his Son. So, God is always at work regardless of what our circumstances may tell us. Now, that's easy to say when I'm standing here behind a pulpit, generally in good health, generally not too much stress in my life, But I do know that when the agitations are severe, it's harder to hold on to that. So I don't say it lightly. But I do say it is truth that we can embrace. Here's a second thought as we just reflect on this. His plan can be so amazing that something seemingly insignificant may bear fruit even a millennium later. You see, it's a thousand years approximately after this happened in the lives of Ruth and Naomi 
And this entire account that takes place, it's a thousand years before Christ will come and present himself. But to understand what we're saying, as we read that genealogy, do we understand that God's redemptive plan through the person of Jesus Christ went right through the womb of Ruth? That there might be a son born to not blot out Naomi's husband's and son's names. Is that incredible? They had no clue what was happening there. But God sovereignly was at work. We get to look for what he's doing. It may or may not be evident to us. I understand that. But we can be confident he's doing something. And if we can't see it, if he doesn't give us the revelation as to what it is in clear understanding, we still can trust his greater plan in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And I just finish with one last thought. Because I'm trying to help us understand that this little book of Ruth is a reason for hope. Remember where we began. This all unfolds during the time of the judges. A corrupt time. An ugly time. A discouraging time. When God's people seem to just so readily Here he called them to be his own special people in Exodus 19. For six books, we watched as God called out to them passionately that you are the people upon whom I have put my favor and I want to raise you up and I want to make you special and I want to make you be the ones who reveal to a world in darkness who I am. And they continually dismissed him. And we look at their behavior and we get discouraged. But in the middle of that is this little book of Ruth where God is revealing to us that his redemptive work is continuing to tick along and it will not be extinguished. So my friends, as believers understanding the sovereign God who is at work redeeming people to himself in this world, this little book of Ruth reminds us whether we can understand it or see it at the moment or not, we always have hope because of what God is doing. Father, thank you for the magnificence of your being and of your work. Thank you, Lord, you continue, despite all of our failures, to call us to yourself, to understand the magnificence of what you are doing. And Lord, as we consider those who on the day Christ entered And they rejected. They couldn't see it. They didn't see it. They didn't want what it was he was offering as their kinsman redeemer. Oh, Father, I pray. I pray that you will open our eyes on a daily basis to how it is you are redeeming the moments in which we live. How you are bringing hope and joy and goodness and blessedness into them if we will but see you at work in them. And I pray you give us a spiritual depth to grasp your presence in every agitating circumstance we face. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.